This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, turmoil in South Africa in the wake of former President Jacob Zuma's arrest in early July. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. As VOA's South Africa correspondent Darren Taylor reports, on July 8, former South African President Jacob Zuma began his 15-month sentence for contempt of court for refusing to appear at an inquiry into alleged corruption when he led South Africa between 2009 and 2018. Although Zuma's arrest initially appeared to be a victory for democratic institutions in South Africa, especially the Constitutional Court, protests, looting, and violence broke out soon after. The violence left more than 200 people dead and hundreds injured, with damages to the economy estimated in the billions of dollars. The Economist magazine reports that looters destroyed malls in Pretoria, Durban, and Johannesburg. Arsonists burned trucks along the country's major highway, forcing its closure. This on top of the fact that South Africa already has a record-high unemployment rate of 32.6%. The South African government deployed 25,000 troops to restore order, and volunteers have finally begun to clean up. After helping Nelson Mandela combat apartheid, Jacob Zuma was president of South Africa from 2009 to 2018. Analysts say during his time in office, his party, the African National Congress, or ANC, engaged in corruption. Billions of dollars were utilized not to help the country, but to enrich members of the party. Darren Taylor interviewed former ANC intelligence minister Ronnie Castrils, who told him that Mandela's vision of changing the lives of poor people had devolved into, quote, enriching a few white capitalists and a new super-rich class of black tycoons, close quote. Nonetheless, Zuma is still a popular figure in the eyes of many South Africans, including in KwaZulu-Natal, his home province. Well, with us for an update on South Africa and the implications of the violence are two distinguished regional analysts. Ambassador Michelle Gavin is Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, she served as the U.S. ambassador to Botswana and the U.S. representative to the Southern African Development Community, or SADC, from 2011 to 2014, and Franz Kronje. He is CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, and that's a public policy think tank based in Johannesburg. He also directs the Center for Risk Analysis and has written three books on South Africa's future. Our guests join us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Hello. So, Franz, let me begin with you. You're on the ground in Johannesburg. Can you give us an update on the situation on the ground and what you think are the most salient factors that led to this very dire moment? Yeah, I think we've got a handle on it. The potted history is South Africa becomes a democracy in 1994. It then experiences a a very successful decade and a half that sees the number of people with jobs double living standards increase very quickly, significant uh, budget deficit is converted into a surplus, high government debt levels are cut in half, and life on the whole improved. And in that was a democratic dividend, in that the country was stabilizing the very high levels of violent protest action of the end of the apartheid era were dissipating, and support for the African National Congress, which is the party that Nelson Mandela had led to victory in 1994, actually increased and quite significantly. 
We then moved into a second decade, which takes us to today. And many of those trends were broken. Corruption uh, creeps into the civil service on a quite extraordinary scale. And the pragmatic policy making of the first decade of democracy is abandoned. As a consequence of that, we saw living standards begin to stagnate and later reverse. And when that happened, we saw a sharp escalation in levels of violent protest action. And I can tell you that in the decade to today, those levels on our numbers increased by about 400%. And the intensity of protest action also increased, by which we mean violence from a decade ago, about 10% of protest actions were violent. The figure last year was around 30%. And in the main our assessment was that the blow-up of 10 days ago reflected well-established trends, the relationship between declining living standards and high levels of political instability. Since then, the blow-up has abated, a relative calm has been restored, and that is the position that we find ourselves in today. Turning to you, Ambassador Gavin, for your take on the antecedents of the violence that we have witnessed in the aftermath of former President Zuma's jailing. You know, obviously, I can only speak as an observer of South Africa. I'm not on the ground. But certainly, I do think this long period of economic stagnation and now decline, where you've had people moving out of the middle class into poverty over the last year, in particular, is part of kind of the kindling that was set alight in this latest round of incredibly damaging protests. And I think it's about the unemployment figures. It's about about the absence of opportunity. It's about, an, I think, a societal sense of tremendous frustration at this constant parade of corruption scandals in government that really erode a sense of public trust, not just in specific leaders or specific political parties, but really in kind of a rule-governed system as a whole, right? If the rules don't seem to apply to everybody, it's a hard thing to invest in. And I do think that the COVID-19 pandemic, which has hit South Africa so terribly hard, and there's no end clearly in sight for South Africans, has just added another level of difficulty and desperation that people have been dealing with. So I think there was a tremendous amount of kind of pent up desperation, anger, and frustration. And then you have perhaps some political actors manipulating that, trying to mobilize that frustration, harness it to their own political ends. So it's a pretty toxic mix. Indeed. Back to you, Franz Cronier. Our colleague Darren Taylor reports that President Cyril Ramaphosa has been saying, quote, through social media, fake news and misinformation, they, those who instigated the recent violence, sought to inflame racial tensions and violence. Worst of all, these instigators have sought to manipulate the poor and the vulnerable for their own benefit. He said this attempted insurrection has failed, has failed to gain popular support amongst our people, close quote. How would you assess his management of the crisis? And again, that leads us to ask the role of Zuma and his supporters in instigating this and his, as Michelle Gavin said, trying to skirt the rule of law. The rule of law doesn't apply to certain people like former leaders or current leaders. What's your take? The position of the South African government has been that the country faced an organized insurrection 
with the objective of removing elements of that government, at least in certain regions of the country. We do not go along with that analysis. Undoubtedly, there was some planning behind it and some organization, but that is part and parcel of protest action in any society. Things do get organized. And to the uninitiated, you can make it seem like a monstrous conspiracy. We think what occurred in the main here is, and Michelle gets it absolutely right, that context I sketched compounded by the consequences of South Africa's lockdown. We've been quoting Mao a great deal in the last 10 days, and in the main, the letter he drafted to his revolutionary comrades in January of 1930, telling them not to be disillusioned at the revolutionary potential of China because he said if you look around, the prairie is tinder dry and it takes just one spark to start a prairie fire. So around Mr. Zuma, there probably was some planning to raise hell and that probably had an effect. But we stopped far short of the government's position that this was a planned insurrection that sought to bring about some sort of realignment of governing structures in the country. In fact, we think that is a stratagem that has been put in place by the current administration in order to shield it from fallout around the slow pace of policy reforms, the reform agenda that Mr. Ramaphosa came to power upon about three years ago has stuttered and disappointed and underwhelmed, with the consequence that socioeconomic conditions are not improving to the extent that they should. And South Africa faced a hard economic lockdown in an environment where stimulus could not be provided to businesses that shut down and people who lost their jobs. Now, in the aftermath of a blow-up of this scale, there will be a great reckoning and blame will be apportioned. And in playing up the thesis that the country faced an organized insurrection, uh, we read an attempt to shield Mr. Ramaphosa and his government from culpability for allowing the circumstances to persist that underpinned this blow-up. Ambassador Gavin, what's your take on what Franz Kroni just said with respect to Cyril Ramaphosa, his management or mismanagement of the COVID pandemic, of the economy? To what extent does that play into what we just witnessed with the terrible violence, looting and so forth? Look, I don't have access to information that could clarify for me the sort of planned insurrection hypothesis, right? It's impossible for me to know. My own sense is that both things can be true, right? You could have had a reasonable degree of planning on the part of some of former President Zuma's allies intended to sort of shake the constitutional foundations of the country simultaneously. You know, I think what you absolutely did have and can have again is a society so disillusioned with the status quo that there is a potential for this kind of disorder going forward. And, you know, as far as President Ramaphosa goes, I think that he came to power with a very unwieldy kind of governing coalition, right? The splits and divisions within the ANC, which has always been a tremendously big tent with some elements that are almost impossible to reconcile ideologically or politically. And I think that he has been struggling to manage his own team, includes leaders and individuals who are really working at cross purposes with his agenda. And if I'm a South African struggling with unemployment, struggling with the effects of this pandemic, I'm not sure how much sympathy I have for that, right? 
but it doesn't change the fact that he doesn't have as much capacity as perhaps a glance at the South African constitution and what kind of strength that presidency should have might lead one to believe because there are countervailing forces within his own government and within his own party. And this is an issue that must be addressed head on now. I do think that the social and economic struggles of South Africans cannot take a back seat to these political rivalries among ANC elites and their followers. It can't go on this way. You're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Michelle Gavin. She is former U.S. ambassador to Botswana, now senior fellow for Africa studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Franz Cronier. He's CEO of the Institute of Race Relations based in Johannesburg. And we're discussing the unrest and looting in South Africa following former President Jacob Zuma's arrest and detention for contempt of court. What are the broader implications? This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to loyal listener and Facebook fan Petar Al-Furaji from Baghdad, Iraq. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our discussion about the future of South Africa in the wake of former President Jacob Zuma's arrest and detention. Turning back to you, Franz Cronier, to talk about the state of the ANC. Michelle Gavin just told us before the break that the social and economic problems that South Africans are experiencing, the enormous inequality, really cannot take a backseat to the internal struggles of the ANC elites. Talk about how that is undermining the ability to prevent the type of violence we just saw and going forward to govern. To what extent this is perhaps a turning point? I think this is a continuation of a turning point that we take back to 2007. And in that year, the ANC held a conference where it elects its leaders. It does so every five or ten years. And at that conference, they ejected a man by the name of Thabo Mbeki. Now, Mr. Mbeki had been the de facto prime minister to Nelson Mandela. Now, we don't have a prime minister, but that was really Mbeki's role. And when Mr. Mbeki was ejected from the party, it ejected more than the man. It ejected a change of direction and policy and a level of pragmatism that Mandela had brought to the South African government. And that's worth going to read. You'll find it on the Internet. The very significant speech he made at Davos in 1992 before uh, assuming the presidency in which he said South Africa would be pragmatic and seek to grow its economy. And that certainly informed ANC policy for the decade thereafter. In the aftermath of the jettisoning of Mr. Mbeki, that whole turn and approach to government was jettisoned as well. And the consequences are something we have measured over the decade to today, or slightly more than that, and they are as follows. The budget deficit now is of a depth that has only been eclipsed on three previous occasions since the formation of the Union of South Africa in 1910. So in effect, the ANC in government is running out of the money that it needs to govern the country. 
Our electricity supply has been interrupted now for the better part of a decade. So we'd say we're out of money, the ANC, and it's out of the electricity it needs to govern. We poll the party very closely in all parties and public opinion in South Africa. And we've now reached a point where on the raw numbers, we see the ANC now reaching a point where its support levels are in the low 50 percentiles, which is the lowest they have ever been. And more significant than that, when we disaggregate that polling to look at age brackets, we find that for people in the bracket age 16 to 50, in other words, the bulk of the voting market of the next decade, the ANC has now lost its national majority and is sitting in the 40 percentiles. And I could go on and list a few other things. Uh, The intellectual depth of the party is hardly what it was when it was led by Mandela, etc. And for that reason, our advice is that the ANC has reached a point of no return, and it did so perhaps a decade ago. And it no longer possesses the resources, the insights, the institutions or the policies to sustain itself in government if South Africa remains what it presently is, a fundamentally free and open society. And if we are right in that estimation, then two of the dominant paradigms that have defined the thinking of observers about South Africa are about to change. The first such paradigm is that the ANC will run or runs the country. And that's been probably the paradigm for 50 years. For 50 years, the question on South Africa has been, what will the ANC do with it before it assumed power? And after it assumed power, what is it doing with it now? Now, we think that question can change because the ANC can lose its political dominance. The second paradigm is that South Africa is a unitary state that is governed out of the capital in Pretoria. And that's a paradigm that's existed for about 110 years since the formation of the union itself. And we think that as the authority of the state begins to recede, you saw that starkly in these protests, we might begin to see a fragmentation or even balkanization of the union as uh, different communities begin to take upon themselves to a far greater extent than ever before, though the phenomena is already quite advanced. What were once the functions of the state? So if we're right in those calls, what the external observer or internal participant has seen and experienced and thought about South Africa and the paradigms that underpinned that thought, we are seeing a great thawing in the status quo. The theory of changing equilibriums plays out here. And this marker of the violence that we're talking about this afternoon might later be read as one of the more significant milestones towards the dismantling of two of South Africa's most dominant political policy and economic paradigms. So over to you, Michelle Gavin. If you think this is really a point of no return with respect to ANC's governance, what are the implications for the party at this juncture? Well, I think it's certainly a clear illustration, if one was needed, that what's happening has not been working. And I do think it's important to think about some of the polling from Afrobarometer, right, which shows us that there's 
there's just less party loyalty in South Africa these days. And the ANC, which I think for a long time maybe felt confident that its incredible history in helping to lead to the liberation of South Africa, this was kind of sufficient to grant it legitimacy to South African voters, I think now has to reckon with. A lot of South African voters are very young. They don't remember the apartheid era. They know their history, but what they're looking for is a government that can deliver, that can deliver on more opportunity, on security, and on, you know, dignity, a chance to live a life of dignity where you have an opportunity to advance yourself and your family, and you can do that in an atmosphere of security. So these are the things that South African voters want. And the ANC, ultimately, it's a movement with an amazing history, but it's a political product. So we know what the demand is for. And so if the ANC is going to continue in a successful vein, it's going to have to find a way to meet that demand. And that will, I think, require taking some political risks right now to try and move past this dysfunction of a party often at war with itself. So turning back to you, Franz, for where we stand this moment with respect to Zuma's trial, if you expect any more hiccups and violence or protests, or will there be a victory, so to speak, for you know, the rule of law, holding people of his caliber to account. And where do you see the country going forward? You need a sense of perspective here. You must remember that for 400 years, this corner of the world, of Southern Africa, has very seldom been stable or well governed to the advantage of all its people. And in fact, I would say that of that 400 years, it was really only the era from 1992 until 2007 when that was true. And yet here we find ourselves today on the numbers and the indicators being the most free we've ever been and demonstrating living standards that are essentially the highest they've been but for a decade ago. So it's going to be very volatile from here on out, but that doesn't mean it has gone badly wrong. That doesn't mean we've lost our way entirely. The likelihood now is that we will see an inflection point this decade. There are national elections in 2024 and 2029, and that the ANC might lose one of those elections and that it will be supplanted by a slightly shambolic coalition government. There will be high levels of violence at intervals, particularly as these pressures play out. And that is very simply our thesis, that we are reaching that point now. We will probably go through it in the next decade. It will be messy. It will be violent at times. It will seem very dramatic from the outside. But it is not a fundamental departure from where we have been. And the outlook for me in the aftermath of that, based on the polling we do of the South African populace, which is incredibly moderate and sensible and possessed of a great desire for the freedoms we won 25 years ago to be sustained. And Michelle Gavin, are you confident that in terms of Zuma's trial, that things will go forward now without so much disruption? Or will he continue to try to throw a monkey wrench, as we say, into the proceedings despite his opposition? This was quite a victory for the rule of law. Can that hold in your view going forward? I certainly think it can. I don't think it's guaranteed to. You know, so often when we discuss South Africa in terms of crisis like this, there's a lot of discussion about the very real and deep social and economic and political 
problems that South Africans struggle with. But I think it is also important to note how much resiliency there is in South Africa and how much there is to admire. You do have multiple instances of courts upholding the rule of law in the face of tremendous political pressure. You have a civil society, including an independent media, that helped to bring the kind of grand-scale corruption of the Zuma era to light and shed light on it, and then a system that was compelled into action to try and bring some accountability to bear for these crimes. And even in the aftermath of this terrible violence, you see South Africans banding together to try and clean up their communities, to try to care for each other. There is a social fabric here that's compelling and admirable. There are lots of really deep-seated problems that any government would struggle to address. But I think it's important to note there are a lot of ingredients in the South African mix that uh, other societies long for and wish they had. So it is not a lost cause by any stretch of the imagination. Well, on that relatively optimistic note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I would like to thank my guests, Ambassador Michelle Gavin, Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and former Ambassador to Botswana, and Franz Cronier, he's CEO of the Joburg-based Institute of Race Relations. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. 